If you're ready to gain a lifetime of real estate secrets in just minutes a day, then this podcast is for you. For the past 40 years, Dolph DeRoos, the king of commercial real estate, has helped thousands of new and experienced investors turn properties into cash and dreams into reality. If you're ready to make more money, do bigger deals, and reach greater levels of wealth through real estate, then we have exactly what you need on Buy Big with Dolph DeRoos. Welcome back. You know, last time we talked about some of the different ways of attracting tenants to your commercial properties. And we've had a lot of feedback on that. And thank you all for the comments. And there's obviously now a lot of enthusiasm around the subject. But there are so many more things that we can do. And some of you alluded to that. And I want to share some of them now. One of them is to talk about the importance of having a good anchor tenant. Now, an anchor tenant won't work for every commercial property you've got. Firstly, If the property is just a single tenant property, then whatever tenant you get, I mean, by definition, I guess they're the anchor tenant, but they are who they are. They're just the single tenant you've got for that property. By anchor tenant, I mean, say you've got a small strip mall or you've got a large mall for that matter. Getting an anchor tenant, a big shop, if it were to be something like Macy's or Sears, um, I'm using those because they're closing shops at the moment. They're closing hundreds of stores nationwide. So they may not be the ideal anchor tenant for you to have, but someone who occupies a significant premise within that shopping mall or whatever it is, um, then the quality of that anchor tenant can determine whether you get other people coming along or not. And very often securing one particular kind of tenant will make it a lot easier to have a cascading effect of other tenants coming there. So you might want to have extra incentives to bring that anchor tenant in. You might give them a rent holiday or instead of charging them the normal rent that you could expect to get for those premises, it might be $18 a foot. You might say, listen, we're going to do it on the basis of $10 a foot, but we want 2% of your gross income, or we want 5% of your net income. Now, there are risks in doing that because that means that you're going to have to take their word for the paperwork they give you to declare what their gross or net income as the case may be, what it actually is. Um, You know, you've got this query as to whether they're in fact doctoring the book so that they can give you less money than they perhaps should. Um, But if you have to be worried about those things, then you're dealing with the wrong kind of tenants anyway. So I tend to dismiss concerns like that. But getting a good anchor tenant is a really smart thing to do. But overriding all of that is how do you even attract a tenant to your premises? be it an anchor tenant or someone in perhaps one of the, I don't want to use the word lesser, but lesser premises or smaller premises or an ancillary premise to this one occupied by the anchor tenant. And most people seem to think that if you're a commercial landlord, there's little you can do other than the obvious of perhaps painting the building. But if the building's painted and it's watertight, meaning when it rains, nothing leaks, then there's little you can do and nothing could be further from the truth. And I always say you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are looking at renting those premises and see what you can do to make them more appealing. And I've got some ideas that I want to share with you. And I know that they're harebrained, wacky ideas. And none of these ideas, in all probability, can be applied to every commercial property I've got or have come across or that you might have. But if you can only apply one of these ideas once in your lifetime on one of your commercial properties, then it's still worth figuring out and listening to and figuring out your own personal variation on it. And more importantly, if I come across and and share with you today five ideas 
that you know you'll never be able to implement because the ideas I'm sharing are just too harebrained and wacky. Like last time I talked about a funeral parlor, right? The chances of you stumbling across a funeral parlor that you're going to buy and figuring out how to apply something specifically for funeral parlors that I share with you, they're pretty small, but I wouldn't say they're zero. In fact, people gamble in casinos with a much smaller chance of striking the jackpot. So it's not a complete waste of time. But here's my point. If we go through five different mechanisms that even though we all know that in all probability you'll never get to use them, the fact that you're thinking of them will make your mind more creative so that when you have your own commercial piece of real estate that might be unique in its own specific unique way, then you'll have the mechanism, the training, the mind power to figure out a wacky, out of the box, out of left field methodology for attracting a tenant to that one that you may not have thought about if you hadn't heard about my wacky funeral parlor idea or my wacky aircraft hangar idea or whatever. So let's get started. I just need, don't even know where to start because there are so many of them, but storage facilities. Let's talk about them for a moment. Storage of stuff that people will probably never use again is massive business all over the world, but particularly here in the States. And for a long time, American houses, like American cars and everything else, seemed really big when you came from overseas to visit the States, as I did first, gosh, a long time ago now, in the 70s and the 80s. And we were used to cars of the sorts we had in Europe or down under in Australia and New Zealand. And you first come to America and you see these big elongated, we used to call them American sleighs. They seem so spacious and vast. And of course, things have changed. Overseas cars have probably gotten a bit bigger. And here cars, I'm pretty sure to say that on average, they've gotten a bit smaller. And we now buy models of cars that are available throughout the world with just minor variations to do with technology of the catalytic converter and things like that. So we've got a much greater homogenization around the world or standardization, normalization of sizes. But back then, everything, everything seemed big and houses seemed big. Um, but even though most Americans live in what in many parts of the world would be described as big homes, we have surplus stuff. We keep on accumulating stuff. And I'm astounded that the number of storage facilities in this country keeps on expanding. And you have programs on TV like Storage Wars, where it shows what happens when people have abandoned their storage units. In other words, they've stopped paying the rent. And apparently it's in the contract that if you don't pay the rent for so many months, then the contents revert in ownership to the operator of the storage facility, and they can auction them off probably under certain rules, which vary state by state. But my point is there's a whole industry around it. And just recently within this COVID period that we seem to be exiting now, there was a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, that was defunct and no one wanted it. It was old. They didn't know what to do with it. It got turned into a storage facility. It's not an entirely silly idea because already a hotel is partitioned into essentially small rooms, right? Each with a firewall between them. Sometimes they've got a partition, a doorway connecting pairs of rooms, but they can be locked off with a double firewall door. But even so, they're converting hotels into storage facilities. So the question is, if you ever come across a storage facility, is there something you can do to make it more appealing to your tenants? Because this is still on the theme of what can we do to attract more tenants to our commercial real estate? And I find there is. Many storage facilities traditionally had an on-site manager. This is someone who was there that if ever you couldn't get access to the premises, they might have had a, a master lock type situation to allow every tenant, every renter of a storage unit to get access on site. 
And then each of these storage doors usually had padlocks, which enabled you to get access to your particular storage unit. But they had an, an on-site manager who tended to live there. And as we all know, very often the labor component of any business is the biggest expense. That's why I personally predict that the cost of traveling around in what we traditionally called a taxi is going to go down as we get driverless vehicles. And on that note, the cost of taxis already went down when we went to the Uber and Lyft model, and there were various others, but I think they dominate the industry and became more efficient. The rides were cleaner. The service was friendlier. For heaven's sake, you even get offered water every now and then. You want a bottle of water. Um, whereas, you know, traditional taxis, they were gruff and they were late. You used to have to summons them by phone. I remember calling a taxi to go to the airport. And then it's 10 minutes after my pickup time. So you call the taxi company and say, hey, I booked a taxi for whatever, 8 a.m. It's not here yet. Can you give me an, an ETA? And sir, we're taking new bookings. Do you think we know where every taxi is? Well, with an app, you do. Who would want to go back to that system? where you're kind of abused on the phone by these people who have zero interest in looking after you. So these things are natural evolutions. And what I'm going to talk to you about how you can make your storage facility more appealing to a current batch of potential tenants is all a natural evolution of technology. So one of the things I propose is that instead of having some kind of keyed access to the premises, whereby any of the tenants of a particular storage unit need to have a copy of this key to get onto the premise in the first place, do it electronically, have an electronic lock with a combination code and make each combination code different for each person. Because then what happens is if they haven't paid the rent for a month, you can deny them access, right? Let's say that one and a half months behind a rent, you've sent paperwork, you're late. What if they can still go in there and clear out all their stuff? You'll miss out. So we have them whereby we have electronic access. If their credit card didn't clear for that month's payment, then their code no longer works. And it's quite hilarious when you get the call. I don't personally get them anymore, but I used to, where they say, your stupid system's not working. I can't get in. And I'll say, well, let me look it up. Oh, that's all right. That's because your credit card didn't clear. You didn't give us the updated details. Well, I don't want the stinking unit anymore. You say, well, that's okay. If you bring your rent up to date current, you have to give 30 days notice. So if you like, we can note here that you don't want to renew for next month. But if you bring it up to date for the current month, then your code will work again. I can't override it manually anyway. Your code will work and you'll be able to get your stuff. And they usually curse a bit and complain, but they do it. So it serves two purposes. One is that people never lose their keys. And by the way, if you have keyed access and someone genuinely loses their key and someone else finds it, they now potentially have access to those premises. It makes it less safe for everyone, including you. Whereas when it's done electronically, you'll never have the situation where they lose their keys. So that is one thing. Does it cost a lot to put an electronic system in? Yeah, there's an initial cost, $10,000, $20,000, depending on the size of it. But the cost of these things, as in everything electronic, is plummeting as time goes on. And it gets more efficient and you can manage it from anywhere in the world. It's kind of a cool thing to do. And talking about technology, it's not even new technology. It's like 30 years old now, but so many people are so far behind that they don't realize this works. You can buy an IP camera, now an internet protocol camera. This is a camera that doesn't record onto film. That's really old school. And it doesn't record onto a memory card, like an SD card or something, but it's connected through an ethernet cable, sometimes Wi-Fi. It's connected through ethernet to your router and you can tunnel into that camera from anywhere in the premises. But if you're outside, 
you can tunnel in. You need to do what's called port forwarding and a few things like that. But you can get access to that camera from anywhere in the world. Now, not only can you get access, but you could give access to other people. So you can buy these cameras now, you know, on eBay, they're $10, $20. You can buy them brand new, depending on the brand, for not much, you know, way under $100. And if you just have one internet connection to the entire storage facility, let's say you've got 100 storage units there, you only need one internet connection. And then what I do is I put IP cameras inside every unit. Now, you might say, why do you want to do this? Well, firstly, it gives your clients a visible indication that no one else is going into their unit. You're fully transparent. They can see that because you give them access to the camera in their particular unit, right? They're all username and password protected. And so every client has access to their own personal camera inside their unit. And it doesn't happen very often, but every now and then one of the couple will say, honey, did we have that old bed that we got from Martha's bedroom? Did we put it in storage? Well, I don't know. Well, can you drive down there to have a look? Well, let's look it up and they'll look on the camera and say, oh yeah, there it is. It's against the wall. Oh, that's right. That's exactly where we put it. Whatever. So they'll be able to see what's there. Even if they don't use it, the fact that you offer this is seen as an added benefit. And very often you can get an extra $10 a month easily for that unit when it has an IP camera, or you've installed them in every unit, but you say for an extra $15 a month, I'll give you access to that camera, or $10 or 20, whatever you want to do, whatever the market you know is happy with. And the point is you will soon get the cost of that internet connection and all those cameras back. People love that sort of thing. And so they're just two ideas on something as dull and boring and stodgy as a storage facility having electronic locks to gain access to the premises that doubles up as a way of making sure they pay. And the other one is having cameras so that they've got, you know, camera access. And you can also program them, of course, if you wanted to, such as every time a light comes on or a door opens or whatever, that it sends a photo and a little notification to the tenant in that particular unit. And that way, if, you know, dad rents the unit, but he's got his three kids or cousins, whatever they have access he'll get notified whenever anyone goes and puts something there or takes away. That's kind of a cool feature. Now, if you think there's not much use for that, hold that thought. Because at one stage, I built aircraft hangars. Now, hangars are buildings that are not particularly sophisticated. I can explain to you in the next minute exactly how you construct a hangar. It is a concrete slab. It's pretty easy to do. You probably want some reinforcing rebar, whatever it's called, on the ground, but then you have the boxing around it, you pour the concrete in, you wait for it to get hard, you get rid of the boxing, and there you've got your pad. And then you have walls. Now they have to be sufficiently strong so that in whatever winds you expect in that area, they can withstand the force of the wind so that the walls of the hangar don't fall down onto the expensive airplanes inside or parts of the wall corrugated iron or whatever gets ripped off and stretches the side of the plane, you don't want that. So the walls need to be reasonably robust, but you don't have a series of windows on different levels. They're pretty rudimentary. And the front, you want two big doors that can open up so that the plane can get out. And usually out the back, there's a single door for people to get in and out. That's almost as simple as they are. They are not sophisticated buildings to build. And I built these at an airport in Australia called Jandicott. Most of you have probably never heard of it. You would probably think, you know, if, you, if I'd said Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne, you might have heard of it. Jandicott is, in fact, the busiest airport in Australia. It sounds remarkable. Um, it's close to Perth. It's not Perth International Airport. 
but it's the airport where a lot of Asian airlines do their training. So they get a lot of takeoffs and landings because of that. It's the headquarters of the Royal Australian Flying Doctor Service. Um, it's just the busiest airport there is uh, in Australia. So we built some hangars there. And here's the thing. We got double the rental of what other hangar owners were getting for their units. And everyone knew about it. The clients we had, the tenants we had in our aircraft hangars willingly paid double what they could have paid if they rented space in our neighbor's hangar. And yet we did certain things. And when you hear it, you say, well, that's pretty simple. Is that worth double? Well, the market proved it was. And here's the thing. We simply put IP cameras in these hangars. Now, when you think about it, unlike a storage facility where they store, what was it, Martha's old bed, um, in aircraft hangars, you tend not to store old beds or tax records that you have to keep for 10 years to conform to whatever rule. No, you tend to keep airplanes in there, airplanes that might be worth millions of dollars, a Gulfstream 550 or a Global Explorer 1550, $8 million, $12, $20 million. So the owners of the goods stored in these storage facilities called aircraft hangars, they have a vested interest in knowing that their little babies are looked after well. So again, we'd put IP cameras in there. This time they'd have the what's called the PCT function. It would be um, zoom, tilt, and pan. So tilt, you can go up and down, pan, you go around, zoom, you can go in and out. And then next to the camera, we'd have a, a thermometer, a barometer, and a hydrometer so that they can check the temperature, the air pressure, and the humidity level. Because humidity is important for an airplane when it's sunny, especially in places like the Arizona desert. Does the temperature go sky high? If it's a metal cased hanger, you don't want the temperature to go to 150 Fahrenheit or whatever, 55, 60 degrees Celsius. That's not good for a plane. So they could pan and look at those three indicators. Again, the cameras would be programmed so that if the hangar doors opened or if a light came on or if they detected movement of people, let alone the plane, it would send them photos. They could tunnel in, they could watch in real time or it would capture videos of any movement. Just having that ability for someone who owns a $15 million plane, do you think they care if they're paying $2,000 a month instead of $1,000 a month? Of course not. The difference in rental fee for them relative to the cost of keeping that airplane, it's not just the $15 million outlay, it's probably finance. It's the cost of having a pilot on standby all the time. It's the cost of having other aircrew if it's a big enough plane and they have other staff who, who travel with them. And the, the extra cost of your hangar fee is trivial. And that's why you always want to be in the market where the rental expense for the tenant is such a trivial component of their operation. They're not going to spend six months haggling at every rent review. So there are a couple of examples of what you can do to make your building more appealing. And so I know I've given many examples, and some of you may have heard some of these examples at other times, but they're still interesting to go over. There's one that I find really interesting where we made the building more appealing to the tenants, and we increased the value of the building by $2 million overnight. And I know when some of you hear this, you think, okay, Dolph, this was reasonable up to now. Okay, an IP camera and a storage facility, I can't see anyone would be willing to pay $10 extra a month for that, but I can imagine it's probably possible. Maybe you're thinking that, I don't know. But I can imagine some of you are saying, what, you increase the value of a building by $2 million overnight? That sounds a bit weird or implausible or improbable, especially if I tell you that the cost of increasing the value by $2 million overnight was only $20.
And some of you are saying, okay, now you've really got off the deep end. That is just impossible. You're just saying that for effect. So let me explain how it was done. Because again, I'm not saying all of you will be able to implement this. I'm the first to admit that not all of these ideas will work for everything. But by the way, you know, I was going to say IP cameras, you can't put them into every premise, but there are actually very few that wouldn't benefit from it. Even if you have a grocery store, a 24-hour convenience store, a coffee shop, they benefit from IP cameras. They want to do it for security, staff security, avoidance of pilferage or slippage, money being taken out of the till, someone paying for something with a $10 note, but ringing it up as if it was a $5 note and they pocket the $5 themselves and give them change, all that sort of stuff. It takes, you're seeing IP cameras more and more. So many of these ideas can be implemented wider than you would think possible. And the trick is just to figure out is there something we can do here to increase the value beyond the cost of making this improvement? The cost of those high-resolution cameras in the aircraft hangars relative to the extra rent we collected was trivial. And I can assure you that a $20 expense is trivial relative to the $2 million increase in value that you can get overnight from it. So how did we do that? Well, let's cut to the chase. Firstly, let me explain what the $20 was spent on. It was spent on a bucket of white paint and a brush. That's it. Mind you, you can't expect much more because $20 these days doesn't buy you that much more. But that is indeed what it was spent on. To understand how the bucket of white paint and the brush were deployed, I have to go on to a bit of a tangent to explain the circumstances of the city. Firstly, it's in the city of Jakarta. Some of you won't have heard of it. Others of you will know that that's the capital of Indonesia. In fact, it was announced just a few months ago that they're going to relocate the capital to Kalimantan. Kalimantan is the province of Indonesia on the island of Borneo. Borneo is not all owned by Indonesia. The island nation of Brunei is there. Two provinces of Malaysia are there as well. And you've got to understand Indonesia is a nation of 14,000 islands, 7,000, which about half are inhabited, the other half are not. So anyway, they're going to shift the capital for two reasons. One is that um, it's sinking underwater. In fact, it's, it's going lower and lower and lower. It's getting flooded more often. And they're taking groundwater out for consumption purposes. And that's also causing the city to sink. It's a major problem. But the other problem that they've got with Jakarta is it is the most congested city on this planet. The traffic jams are horrendous. If you haven't been there, you will not understand the gravity of the situation. You measure how far it is to go places, not in terms of miles or, or kilometers, but hours to get there. You're going to the Japanese embassy. Oh, that's a two and a half hour journey. You're going to the section section. At this time of day, that's a four-hour journey. It's crazy. And, you know, the, the streets are just jam-packed. And it should be faster to walk in many cases. You might say, well, why doesn't everyone get out and walk? Well, two reasons. One is the humidity is so stifling there and the heat that um, you would arrive drenched. But secondly, so many other people already are putting up with the humidity and the heat and they're getting drenched, but they're walking. So the, the sidewalks and the roads are pretty crowded as well. It is just tremendously crowded. So... We had a client with a building in the CBD, the Central Business District. And you've got to understand the journey from the CBD, it's called Tamarind, from there to the airport should take about 45 minutes, an hour, if you're not willing to push the envelope of the speed limit. So it's an hour to the airport, essentially. But that's assuming there's no traffic. Because of this crazy traffic situation, the journey could take you three hours, it could take you five hours. And the net result of that is if you're a director of a company, 
leasing space in this commercial building in the CBD and you have a 9 a.m. board meeting, you cannot book a 2 p.m. flight because you, know, you, you may not get there on time. So back to this $20 of white paint and a brush. What did I do with it? We went onto the roof of the building and painted a big white circle. And in the middle of the circle, we painted the letter H and you got it. We turned it into a helipad. Now, full disclosure, you can't just paint a helipad symbol on the roof of a building and have a helipad. You need to get something called Civil Aviation Authority approval. And in Indonesia, that involved a few letters and meetings and dinners with people and promises of helicopter rides. But in the end, we got it. And so now we had helipad access, not only to the airport, but anywhere else that was within range of helicopter, obviously. And so the journey to the airport was about 15 minutes. And here's the interesting thing, about half the tenants thought they could possibly make use of the service, and they were happy with an increase in rent. And, you know, the local currency in Indonesia is rupiah, and right now it's about 14,500 rupiah to the dollar, which makes everyone a billionaire in Indonesia, but it doesn't really mean much. And they measure things in square meters usually because they're metric. Um, but when you convert that to US dollars per square foot, the existing rental was about $14 a foot. And by having this helipad there, the rent went up to $16 a foot, a $2 per foot lift. And as I said, about half the tenants were happy with that because they thought they'd avail themselves of the service to get to the airport or other places by helicopter. And the other half of the tenants probably knew that they weren't going to avail themselves of this opportunity in all probability, but they were still happy with the increase in rent because they had bragging rights. They could say to their friends and colleagues, oh, our building has helicopter access, you know. And if ever we need it, we can use it. So they were all happy with the $2 a foot rise. It was about 10,000 square meters, which is roughly 100,000 square feet. So a $2 per square foot rise over 100,000 square feet is a $200,000 increase in rental every year. And if you increase the rent by $200,000 to find out the value of that, you divide it by the cap rate, prevailing cap rates at the time were around 10%. $200,000 divided by 10%, boom, is a $2 million lift in value. And that's exactly what happened. And this is where you can increase the value of something to you, the value of the building. You can increase your cash flow, in this case, by $200,000. And at the same time, you increase the tenant appreciation. I don't see who the loser is in this scenario, other than the neighbors, perhaps the tenants of the neighboring properties who every now and then had to put up with the noise of a helicopter landing on what for them was the building next door. But for many of them, it was a pretty exciting thing anyway. And they knew that in all probability, if ever there was going to be a medical evacuation, they could probably call the building next door and say, hey, we've got someone who needs a helicopter. Can we use your building? And they would have said, yes, it's just no one really complained about it. Sometimes you can do things where everyone is a winner. And that's one of the things I love about real estate is that you're not doing something for your benefit at the expense of someone else. Um, all that you're doing is creating something for which there is demand. All right, so to close off, because again, we're rapidly running out of time. Let me give you one more example. Let's say that, that you and I own a warehouse and it's an ugly warehouse and it's been vacant for two years and it's in a sea of similarly ugly and vacant warehouses. And um, I've been brought onto the picture. I, I got a partnership in this deal or whatever. We just bought it, doesn't matter. But we've got a vacant warehouse in a sea of similar vacant warehouses. 
Are we going to cry into our soup every night and say, man, we've got a vacant warehouse? Or are we going to be proactive and do something about it to get a tenant? Well, my claim is let's do something proactively. So the first question I would ask is who's going to decide whether to lease this building? Is it going to be the coffee or tea man or woman who's going to make coffee and tea at morning tea and afternoon tea? The answer is no. Is it going to be the CEO of the company at the head office in New York or Paris or Vienna or Toronto? No. It's going to be the manager who's going to manage that warehouse. So this manager has already been assigned the task of finding a suitable warehouse for the company. In fact, find us the most suitable one at the best price. So we've got to appeal to this manager. And I don't know what you would do. Or maybe you can't think of anything that you would do. But what I would do is I would take that manager's office and give it a metamorphosis. And by that, I mean, we go into that manager's office. We're going to spend a lot of money. We're going to spend a million cents. (laughs) In other words, $10,000. We're not going to spend more than $10,000. In fact, with the dropping of prices of the things I'm going to talk about, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper to do this. But one of the things we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the linoleum, the lino on the floor. We're going to put commercial grade carpet in. So it's going to make it quieter there. We're going to get rid of the single glazed or single pane windows and replace them not with double pane windows, but with triple pane windows. That'll keep the noise out. It's an industrial area and the heat out in the summer and the cold out in the winter. We're going to replace the fluorescent light bulbs with LED bulbs. We're going to replace the locks with electronic locks so that he can never lose his keys. We're going to put a 60 inch LCD screen in there and we're going to tell him it's good for corporate training videos. And we all know that no one's going to watch corporate training videos on that thing, but we've given him a good line that he can use to explain to the boss in New York or Paris or wherever why he rented our place from us. And we're going to put a coffee machine in there and have coffee brewing in case he likes the smell of coffee. And we're going to put a bar fridge in there, supposedly for end of week celebratory drinks with all the staff. And we're going to put IP cameras both inside the building and outside for security and monitoring staff and you name it. And we're going to do all of these things, contemporary furniture or classic furniture or whatever. We're going to do it up to the nines. And now our managers already looked at four vacant, ugly warehouses this morning. And now he comes to our vacant, ugly warehouse. It's no better or worse than any other except for the manager's office. And when he comes to the manager's office and he opens the door and he puts his head in and he smells the scent of that coffee brewing and he sees the 60-inch screen and the carpet and the triple glazed windows, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's bribery and corruption or not, I don't think it is. I think it's just being better in the market. He's going to think to himself, holy smoke, if I choose to lease this property, this is where I will be for 40 hours a week for Lord knows how many weeks going forward. And he says, I'll take it. And he hasn't even asked the rent. And this is the sort of thing where you just have to be a bit more creative to figure out ways of attracting tenants to your premises that beats the pants of what anyone else is doing. And you will always have a full house. All right. So hopefully you've gotten a few ideas of inspiration out of this as to how you too can find tenants for properties that otherwise would go vacant. And this is what I love about commercial real estate. In residential, there's not much I can do to be better than the competition. A house is a house. People lease it or not. If a house is vacant, it's not because the color's wrong of the carpet or anything. It's just your your rent's too high. Drop it by $100 a week or a month, you'll get a tenant. But with commercial, often what it takes is a bit of creativity. And I love the fact that the more creative you are, the more successful you can be in commercial real estate. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, I want to wish you, as always, successful investing.